We have come as far as Luke chapter 7. We are made our way as far as uh, verse 11, and that's where we'll be picking it up this morning. Let's read it together. So afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the briar. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized all of them as they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen amongst us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The title of my message this morning is Out of Compassion. The subject of compassion is dealt with in a very specific, delicate manner in the New Testament. The reason for the manner in which the gospel writers handled the subject of compassion was due to the fact that throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was consistently waiting for the compassion of God to be shown upon them after the judgment of God had occurred upon them. If you read the major prophets, you'll discover that in each and every one of them, there is a plea for God to be compassionate, to cease from his anger, to cease from his uh, judgment, and to show compassion upon the people. When the gospel writers began to associate the idea of compassion with Jesus Christ, they did so in a very specific manner often to demonstrate that Jesus was more than simply a man or a prophet in whom God had sent, but that he was God himself. So when we see or look at the subject of compassion in the New Testament, something that I would believe as Christians we take for granted, let us understand that for the Jewish people, this was a very serious subject. This was something very um, close to the heart of the people. If you read the Old Testament, and I hope that you will, you'll discover that the the children of Israel weren't the easiest uh, individuals to deal with from God's perspective. And yet he desired to bless them so often, but yet they continuously placed him in a position of provocation where they would just provoke him to no end. You know, sometimes I liken the children of Israel to the two kids sitting in the backseat of the car on the family road trip you know, just two miles away from the house and one of them's got to go to the bathroom. You know, three miles away from the house, they're already asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Five miles away from the house, he's touching me. He's touching me. Six miles away from the house, he's, she's touching me. She's touching me. Ten miles from the house, mother's touching both of them now. <laughs> in a corrective manner. 15 miles from the house, the father's had it turned around the car and went back home. You know, 
The children of Israel were constantly putting God in a place of of provoking him to judgment. And so them appealing for his compassion was something that was, again, near and dear to their hearts. The prophets cried for, and Jesus demonstrated for us, of course, being the perfect representation of God. I say that to you this morning because I want us to truly appreciate what we're going to look at next. As we look at the compassion of God, I just don't want us to simply take the compassion of God for granted, but I want us to truly appreciate it. I want us to understand that the compassion of God is another sovereign decision that God uh, has given us and has afforded us as followers in Jesus Christ. And so as we follow Jesus now out of Capernaum, he is still in the region of Galilee, where he did the majority of his miracles, obviously we see a vast number of people following him, those who believe in some indication that there were those in the crowd who did not also. And as he made his way to the city of Nain, which we know is the city of Nin today, uh, they changed the A to an E, it's still a small vision, uh, vision, a village in the region of Galilee there in Israel today, And as he made his way to the gates of the village, and of course the gates were the main entrance way into the village, a funeral procession was making its way out as he was making his way in. And we get the picture that they're passing one another. An interesting illustration or visual for us. Here is a parade of life entering in to the city of Nain through the leadership of Christ and a procession of death leading out of the city of Nain through the the funeral of the individual of this young man who has died and left his mother a widow. And as a result, as Jesus is passing, Luke specifically uses this word in the Greek, to describe the compassion that Jesus felt at that moment to move him to intercede on behalf of this widow. And of course, we'll look at the rest as we continue. One aptly described compassion as this. Compassion has been defined as your pain in my heart. It is an interesting aspect to consider that God not only cares for us. I think we're comfortable with the idea that God knows everything that we're going to do before we do it. I think we're comfortable with the idea that God is in control of all things and allows only those things in our life that are necessary to bring about the uh, conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. But I sometimes wonder if we do not struggle with the fact that God truly cares for us. He cares about us. He cares about what we go through. Even though he knows what we're going through and all things are in control in his precious hands in and and around our lives, it's still needed for us to know that he cares for us. He cares about you. He cares about what you are going through. He cares about what troubles you, what causes you fear, what causes you anxiety, what causes you worry, and so forth. He cares about the needs that you have. He cares about the struggles that you face. He cares about the situations that you find yourself in. 
And he responds. The word care isn't simply that his care is innocuous, meaning it doesn't really interact with our dilemmas, but it's a care where he responds to our dilemmas. And as a result, we should therefore understand that God cares for us compassionately in that manner, where he feels our pain in his heart. And as he's making his way to this funeral... As they drew near to the gate, verse 12, and behold, a man who has died was being carried out. The man was a son of his mother, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Immediately, Luke brings to our attention the person in which God has compassion upon. And though he raises the son, from the dead, which we'll talk about in just a moment, his compassion is towards the mother who has been left in the state of widowhood. And as a result, he is moved by compassion due to her circumstances, to her plight. A widow in that culture was one who found themselves in a very precarious and vulnerable position within that society. It was a very lonely position. It meant that you were without family. It meant that whatever situation you you discovered and you found yourself in within that society, you had to deal with it yourself by yourself alone. Not only was that person alone, but there was a Jewish stigmatism that we learn from the Jewish extra-biblical writings concerning widowhood. And as a result, Many looked upon widows as if they had possibly done something wrong. And God was judging them by making them widows within the society. That they had done something against God, against their husbands, or in some fashion against Israel. And now they were suffering simply being in the state of a widow. And Jesus is moved by compassion towards this woman who not only finds herself in that precarious position, but he also knows that she is an individual that has no voice within that society. As we make our way farther in the book of Luke, we are going to discover as we come to Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. And Jesus gives us this parable that undoubtedly was built upon life's illustrations of a widow trying to obtain justice through the court systems there in Jerusalem. And the only way she could do so is by being so persistent that they finally had to acknowledge her request. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, etc., This was a uh, perfection in nagging, if you will. But for a widow, this was the only course of action she had. She had no voice within that society. She had no one to uh, carry her cares to. She often was excluded from even participating in the local worship services of God, again, because of that stigma. This is nothing biblically indicated. It is more something socially indicated through the historical writings of the Jewish society at that time. 
And so Jesus knew that not only was she alone in society, but she had no voice in society. And then thirdly, she under, he understood that her being a widow most likely meant that she was now poor. Now, in that culture, let us understand that when the husband died, it wouldn't automatically fall to his wife, his wealth, and his household um, material, uh, material possessions that he owned. It would fall to his firstborn son. If they did not have a firstborn son, scholars disagree, but there's a lot of evidence to show that often the material wealth would go to the husband's brother if he had one. And again, sidestepping the wife altogether. This was the whole purpose of dowries and so forth. Something for them to fall back upon. So when Jesus later in Luke 21 uses the example of a widow again, he speaks about the widow coming and giving the two copper coins that she had. And this was all that she had, and he boasted about that she gave more than any of the wealthy who were amongst them. And due to his, under, his social understanding, and this is really what I'm getting to, his social understanding of the position that the widow found herself, herself in, he had compassion. He was moved by compassion to interact and to intercede on her behalf. The Bible certainly cares for widows. Today, as a church, we are instructed very specifically in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, I'll let you read it on your own, the manner in which widows are meant to be handled and treated within the church with respect, with honor, and in some cases, even financial support. God cares about those who find them socially vulnerable within a society the widows, the orphan, the poor, etc. But the concept of compassion is used very, very uniquely throughout all the Gospels and specifically here in Luke where we know that Luke was writing to Theophilus, a Gentile individual who he was hoping not only to lead to Christ but to disciple his newfound faith in Jesus through the writing of the book of Luke and also in the writing of the book of Acts. And as we come to Luke chapter 10, we discover that compassion is once again displayed in one of the uh, stories in which Jesus puts forward about the good Samaritan. But, a Samaritan, but as a, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, that is an individual who was lying in, he was hurt, he was wounded, he was lying on the side of the street, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Jewish people were not known to be compassionate to people other than to other Jewish people. Any other individual, Gentile or foreigner, they had, were very reluctant to be compassionate to those people at all, believing that their God in some ways uh, hated them in comparison to his love for the Jewish people. And so God wanted to demonstrate in the challenge of who is my neighbor by giving, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And as he is articulating who the Good Samaritan is and who the person in need is, he associates compassion, which is again a very sensitive subject to the Jewish people, to a Samaritan who was one of the people that they hated the most because they were half Gentile and half Jewish. And they had great, Jewish people had great disdain for the Samaritans. And yet this Samaritan could show the compassion that the Jewish person was apparently reluctant or incapable of doing. And the reason he used this illustration, I believe, especially the way Luke uses the concept of compassion, was to eventually lead us to Luke 15, where the word is used for the third time in the, in the, in the letter, where he states that the father waiting for the prodigal son to return, was moved by compassion as he watched and waited for his son to return. Now, you know the story, I'm sure. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And as a result... Luke seems to be ramping up that the compassion that Jesus showed is the same compassion that he wishes us to show to those who we love and call our neighbors. And ultimately, it is a character of God the Father because I believe that's who the Father represents within the parable of the prodigal son. So compassion should be at the forefront of our uh, interaction with those who are in need of compassion but the mark interestingly enough gives us more specifics about the compassion i want to bring this to your attention if i may in 634 mark 634 and when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things When the crowd grew hungry in Mark 8, he once again, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. When the compassion of Christ was solicited by the gentleman whose individual, his child was demon possessed and trying to cast his child into fire and to water, In verse 22 of chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, it says, He often casts himself into fire and to water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus, of course, answered and said to him, If you can? What do you mean, if I can? And then he goes on to say, All things are possible for one who believes. Compassion is used very, very delicately by the Jewish people in these writings. It was a characteristic and a trait that they did not want to presume God had towards them, but Jesus Christ wanted to fully example for them that God does have compassion for us. He knows when we're hungry and in need, demonstrated through Mark's gospel. He sees our greatest need, seeing us as a people, his people, the Jewish people, without a shepherd. Compassion moved him to become that shepherd that they needed. When he was asked directly by a father who was 
had lost all hope and was desperate to see his son delivered from the demon possession, he simply said, Lord, will you have compassion on us? And that isn't even questioned. Yes, God will have compassion on us. He knows what we are going through. He understands what we are experiencing. He understands the pain that we have in his own heart. And the compassion that he now demonstrates towards the individual who finds herself in this position, this woman who now finds herself as a widow, and it's, it's, it's a sentence of uh, exclusion. It's a sentence of isolation. It, it's a sentence of social uh, you know, um, outcast. And he addresses it. And he says to her, verse 13, and when the law the Lord saw her, this was no accidental appointment. I am a strong believer that Jesus Christ was perfectly scheduled to meet all in whom he met through his three years of ministry here on this earth. He didn't accidentally come to the woman at the well in Samaria. He didn't accidentally see Zacchaeus up in the tree, you know. Hey you, come on down there. He didn't accidentally come to this point where he would just happen by chance to pass this funeral that was taking place. He knew everything that was going to take place before it took place, and he knew her situation. He knew that she was now in a state of widowhood. He knew all of the things that she was wrestling with in her heart and weeping over, and he comforts her and says, do not weep. Now, do we know that she was simply weeping for the loss of her child? Obviously, that would be significant enough to bring us to tears. But she also knew that her sentence now was one that I wonder if she felt she could bear. And then he came and up and touched the briar. Now, the briar was a plank. The Jewish people either buried their dead in coffins or in, they would take them on a burial plank, which, which is called a briar, and he just walked right up to it. Now, this was something that was unheard of. It certainly got everyone's attention. Because interacting and touching a dead body for a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, or anyone, would consider, they would then be considered unclean and have to go through ceremonial cleansing before they could once again worship within the temple. And this does not appear to restrict Jesus in whatsoever. And then he does something that, if you consider for a moment, doesn't seem rational at all. And I'm not talking about raising the dead, because, again, that blows my mind in and of itself. But he talks to the dead as if they were alive. Isn't that interesting? Every time he comes to a, a dead person, and he is... If it's Lazarus, he speaks to him, Lazarus, arise. If it's the, the, the young child, he says, a little girl, get up and rise. He talks to them they're like they're alive. So, you know, it's one thing to approach the briar and to touch and to interact with the family, but then all of a sudden to talk to the dead person as if they were alive. That's interesting to me. It shows me that our physical being, our physical body is not who we are. It's the spirit that resides within us. 
That's who we truly are. This is just a shell. This is a casing that we have to enjoy the world in which God has created. But the Bible, the New Testament, makes abundantly clear that when we die, we're going to receive a glorified body that is no longer subjected to the effects of the fall. Paul speaks about this greatly in 2 Corinthians uh, 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 Corinthians 5 where he talks about his desire to be clothed with the new body in which was not built with hands. Jesus called it a mansion. Paul calls the bodies in which we have here simple tents. But the glorified state that we will occupy after we die will be a mansion in comparison. I always used to say that I can't wait for that because I'll finally look like Fabio. Long hair and muscular. But I recently saw a picture of Fabio. I don't want to be Fabio anymore. I hope to be better than that, you know. Uh, Yeah, I got to find a new one, you know. I mean, it's amazing. All those you inspired to be like at one time, but even they age, don't they, in the world in which we live. But Jesus simply calls them back to reside within the body in which they were originally born. So when he says to this young man, arise, he's speaking to the spirit who's alive, and the individual is not resurrected. Resurrection in the Bible here completely is demonstrated by Christ. Resurrection, Jesus was the first who was resurrected because he never died again. Resurrection for us who are believers in Jesus Christ means that we'll be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. This is a resuscitation. Because unfortunately, this individual had to die again. I, I once heard Pastor Chuck state at a uh, men's conference or a pastor's conference that if anyone dared laid hand, if he were to die in the pulpit and if anyone dared lay hands on him to come back from heaven, that the first thing he would do is punch him in the nose. <laughs> How dare you bring me back? You know, it's not for my good, it's for your good, you know. He said, it would be so selfish of you to call me back to this earth. It was funny how he said it. But Jesus speaks to him as if they're alive. I wish we as Christians would understand that our true, our true identity is who we are in the spirit and not in the flesh. Think about how we, differently we would approach life if we simply grasped that concept. Think about how we would sow to the spirit rather than looking to sow to the flesh. Think of the time that we spend nurturing this physical body. And there's nothing wrong with being healthy and and, and being responsible. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when this body becomes the idol that causes you to negate your spiritual health, then that becomes a problem. But as Jesus is walking into this city and attaches himself to the funeral that's walking out of the city... I, once, I was drawn to the notion that only Jesus was a funeral crasher. Do you know in that society that when an individual died, the number of mourners meant something? And if it was a person that wasn't very popular but rich, they could hire professional mourners to come along in the parade with them. 
to make it look like a big to-do, that this person was significant, important to the village or town or, or city that they lived in by the number of mourners that they had. These were professional mourners. And as they were, they would then wail to the top of their lungs. I mean, they practiced this, actually. They, they practiced wailing in the wake and the loss of the individual that was preceding them in the funeral. But I ever wondered if these professional mourners, because they were hired for so many different funerals around that area at that time, didn't become familiar with Jesus. Because every single time Jesus attaches himself to a funeral in the New Testament, he always raises the individual from the dead. And the funeral becomes a birthday party. It's a very interesting concept. So I can imagine these professional mourners, they're wailing and screaming and calling out loud. Then they see Jesus and say, oh, hold on, we're going to have to change our tune here in a minute. Okay, he's, he, Jesus, they just raised him from the dead. All right, let's go. Celebration time, come on. Jesus was the only funeral crasher that there was. And as a result, it is interesting to me that his raising of this young man was not for the young man's sake, but for his mother's. Notice it clearly says the compassion that he showed was to her. And the Lord saw her, verse 13. And he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the briar, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And then the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to who? His mother. This whole resuscitation was for her. So she wouldn't at this time become a widow just yet. It shows me that God was fully, fully aware of everything that was transpiring in that moment that they were simply passing in procession. It shows me that Jesus had every detail, God had every detail, that he knew everything that was going on. And in this moment of grace, this moment of compassion, he ministers to her. The last act of Jesus on the cross was giving John, the Apostle John, the responsibility of taking care of Mary, Jesus' mother. Fascinating, fascinating thing to look at historically. That Jesus Christ, in the manner in which he was dying, the most excruciating death one could possibly suffer, he had enough sense to see his mother uh, next to John and commit Mary to John and John to Mary. John, historically, interestingly enough, took that commitment so seriously that he did not begin his apostolic ministry to the church until Mary died. Very interesting. And yet here we see Jesus also very attentive to one in whom society wouldn't look at twice. Fascinating to me. And in verse 16, 
Fear seized them all. They were amazed. They were shocked. They were perplexed by what had just happened. They glorified God. They gave Him the credit for all that had taken place. Saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited His people. If I may, just for a moment, I want to bring to your attention some of the uniqueness of what was being said here. The reason they called him a prophet is debated. And the reason it's debated is because this is a text that some would like to use to show that Jesus was nothing more than a prophet of God. If you're talking to one of your Islamic friends, they will say, here, it's simply, uh, he's just simply a prophet of God. He's being called a prophet of God here for one of two reasons. Number one, that just adjacent to this area, just on the other side of this hill called Moriah, there was the, uh, a century earlier the example of Elisha raising the widow's son. And of course, being that close in proximity to that area, there was still the association. Now all of a sudden a widow's son is raised again. And so this would have drawn the Jewish thinking back to that original miracle that ha- transpired a century ago. That's very possible. It is more likely that they are probably referring to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses predicted that one was going to come after him who was greater than he was, and that everything this individual said should be heeded by the people of Israel. He was was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about God coming in the flesh. He was talking about the promised one, the Christ, who Jesus, of course, was. So I have no problem with what they are saying here. And I don't believe that this statement in any way diminishes what the scriptures clearly teach other places concerning the deity of Christ. But then they say something else. And let's adopt a principle when it comes to biblical study. Words matter, okay? It says here that God visited his people. We would read that just quickly and saying, okay, God visited them in the person of Jesus Christ. However, though, throughout the Old Testament, the visitation of God to his people Israel was one of the most sought after times within Israel's history. This is what they looked forward to. By them stating this, now they were getting closer to associating that this was the Messiah in whom they anticipated. They were saying that this is the one that we have waited for earnestly. If you turn with me to Psalm chapter 8, one of my favorite psalms. In Psalm chapter 8, of course it is known as the majestic psalm, and I'll begin in verse 1 if I may. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established uh, strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. But then the psalmist takes a moment to consider in verse 3. When I look at your heavens... 
and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we, God, to even occupy your thoughts in the light of all that you have done? Laying out beneath the stars, or the next time you're at the Adler Planetarium, or Answers in Genesis in their planetarium, and you're looking at the wonders of the universe, thinking that God created all of this, and yet He's mindful, thoughtful of man. He's thoughtful of what man experiences, and what man goes through, and the needs that man has. In the light of everything, He cares for you. Not only collectively, which is the concept the nation of Israel often carried throughout the Old Testament, but when we move into the New Testament, you find that God is not only concerned of us collectively and communitively, but He's also very concerned about us individually. That blows me away. To lay underneath the stars and to consider that God knows me. He has every one of my hair numbered on my head and is subtracting quickly. Every tear that I've ever cried, he has in a bottle. He knows my every thought. He knows my prayers before I ask of them. He knows me. And even before I was born from my mother's womb, he knew me. He knew my failures. He knew the successes that I would have. He would know the pain that I would experience and the joy that I would have. And he was mindful of it all. Now, being mindful is one thing, but the next verse, if you have the Old King James or New King James, it will state, for what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, in our translation, care for him, or in the older translations, visit him. The word there in the Hebrew is one that would come to visit someone who is ill and care for them, attend to their needs. Who is it, God, that not only am I mindful, you're mindful of me, but that you care for me personally, that you visited me? And that's the idea behind what they said and they cried out in the wake of this miracle that then permeated all of Judea. That God has visited us. Not only was He mindful of us, but He knew what we needed and He acted upon the need in which we had. For every person who knew that widow standing there alongside that briar and that son was her hope within that society, He now comes to discover that He has been raised to once again take care of His mom. Amazing to me. God in His detail. His caring, that God has visited us. He has cared for us. He has taken care of us in a personal and dynamic way. The writer of Hebrews 
gives us an invitation for every believer in Jesus Christ. The moment that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, an event took place within the temple itself where a curtain was torn from top to bottom to allow man to enter in before God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it represented. It means that we were given access to something that had been denied mankind all the way up until this point. Before Jesus died, the, in, the method in which an individual needed to approach God was through the Mosaic Law. But after Christ died, that way was made open to you and I. And we have this invitation. And it, the Hebrew writer brilliantly writes it to Jewish people who would never consider doing this because this was an absolute, uh, uh, something that was prohibited to them in their culture. But he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Condemnation? Judgment? Grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace, the unmerited favor of God towards us through Christ. Grace, being uh, given what we do not deserve. Grace that we may receive rebuke, correction, talking to, scolding. No, if your Bible says that, return it. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So often when we fail as believers in Jesus Christ, when we struggle with doubt in one way or another, uh, concerning the things of God, when we don't fulfill our, o- our own personal expectations uh, on the manner in which we think we should fulfill concerning God, we often fall into this pit of condemnation before God for one reason or another. Let me tell you this morning that God does not use condemnation to, to correct us. He uses conviction. Well, aren't you just talking about semantics? No, I don't believe I am. Condemnation will always isolate us from God. Condemnation will be used by the enemy to continuously reminding us how unworthy we are of the things of God through Christ. Condemnation will keep us from church. Condemnation will keep us from fellowship. Condemnation will keep us from prayer. Condemnation will keep us from the Word of God. But conviction draws us in with the hope and the promise of forgiveness, grace, that we can be cleansed of our unrighteousness through the work of Christ and that we can be restored. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God uses conviction, not condemnation. I feel that any believer in Jesus Christ who has in some way brought themselves to a place where they are now feeling condemnation and they feel excluded from God, this is the moment that I would tell you to run to the throne room of God. There are Hebrew scholars that believe that the wording in in Greek can be translated. Now, I know I'm talking about two different things. Hebrew scholars looking at Greek, bringing it into the Hebrew understanding of that Greek in uh, 
in their minds, believe that this could represent one who not only runs in presumptuously before the throne room of God, but jumps into the lap of the one who's sitting on the throne. God, help me. I'm in need. It's so much easier to do this when we are feeling condemned if we know that God cares for us, right? That we know that He visits us, that He not only cares about us, but responds to our needs. This is why Peter wrote what he wrote when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your cares, or as our translation, anxieties on Him, because... He cares for you. That same word cares is the same word used in the Septuagint in Psalm 8 for visits us. This morning it was my desire to bring you into the compassion of God. And that God never runs out of compassion for you. That God always has compassion towards you to give you the assurance that when we fail, and we will fail often, God is mindful of us, He's visited us, and you have not done anything to surprise Him. But He does ask, repent, and I'll pick you up again, I'll brush you off, and I'll start you walking with me once again. A loving Father, one who cares for us so deeply, moved with compassion for the widow that had nothing left at the moment that her son died. And yet God knew it all. It is interesting to me that if you consider it, the imagery that's painted before us in Luke's gospel, that if I was there watching it, And I saw the two processions, one heading into the town led by Christ, a procession of life. The other, a procession of death led out of the town by the carrying of the funeral, uh, the body for the funeral. I would have to ask myself, which procession would I be in? It is interesting to me that the only way new life can be given to an individual is not by us meriting it, but by the grace of God giving it to us freely. Did you notice the two processions walking past each other? If Christ wouldn't have stopped and interjected with the individual who was dead, that individual would have remained dead. But thank God Christ intervened. Thank God that Christ has intervened on our behalf. That nothing we can do to earn or merit salvation is possible. It is only through the grace of God who makes all things possible. Who, it isn't us reaching up to Him. It wasn't that this dead body all of a sudden, as He's walking by, He says, Jesus, help me. It was Jesus who went after the body and called the Spirit back. It was Jesus who initiated that salvation. For us. That salvation is available to any who will call out to Jesus for it. 
But let us understand that our salvation, the new life in which we have, is not based upon what we have done for God, but what God has done for us. And it was moved by compassion to do what he did. I can't say this enough because as I was growing up as a Christian, there would be times that I'd walk into church and I'd be at the end of it, man. The week had just gotten to me in such a way that I just didn't know if I could further one more step. And then all of a sudden, the pastor would be speaking and he'd talk about the love of God. He'd talk about the grace of God. And it just renewed my heart once again. That's what I desire to do today, to renew your heart once again with the grace and the love of God. He is so compassionate. He is so loving. He is so gracious. Let us not fall to that pitfall that Satan would want us to stay in with that full of condemning, useless conversation. Let us turn to Christ and say, Christ, forgive me. Let us run in boldly to the throne room that is open to us and saying, Lord, help me in my time of need, expecting grace and mercy at that time. Why? Because God cares and he has visited us through the person of Jesus Christ.